0: Welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Ramita Ayer, Research Analyst at the Institute. Today on the final episode of our special South Asia Outlook 2022 series, I have with me Dr. Rashida Mohammad Didi, an independent lecturer and researcher. She is also a member of the Maldives Higher Education Council. In this episode, we will be discussing domestic politics in Maldives, its geopolitical dilemma, the effects of the pandemic, environmental concerns, and the rise of radicalization. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Didi. Thank you. So diving straight in, in December 2021, the Maldives Supreme Court acquitted former president Abdullah Yamin, who belongs to the Opposition Progressive Party of Maldives for his involvement in a money laundering case. Now at a time when the internal fractures within the ruling Maldivian Democratic Party are becoming more visible, what do you think will be the implications of the acquittal on the upcoming elections in 2024?
1: I think first of all, definitely um, there will be a much stronger opposition at both the elections, be it a coalition or a single party, meaning single party of Yamin or a coalition with his party, PPM, uh, Progressive Party of Maldives. Um, So that's the first thing that, you know, the opposition will be so much stronger. and. Also, the other opposition parties, such as the new Maldives National Party, led by former defense minister, retired Colonel Mohamed Nazim, will have less chance of succeeding um, the election. Now, apart from Yamin's party, this seems to be the more trendy upcoming uh, party. And so that party will have less chance, I would say. I would definitely forecast that. Now, another thing is that I'm not sure if justice will prevail if President Yamin is free to stand for elections and meddle with elections and act according to whatever he feels is necessary. Because there had been changes, meddling of elections during the 2013 um, presidential election, as well, even to the extent that the Supreme Court was involved. The date of the election was changed several times. The implications of who could participate and who could not participate was changed. And the MDP, the Maldives Democratic Party, which is incumbent party now, had was kind of alienated from the elections. So these kinds of things could happen during the election if Yamin is free to stand the election and to be amongst them. So in other words, I would say, in short, dirty politics could prevail. But on the other hand, Yamin's strong ally at the time, meaning in 2013, was the Jumhuri Party, which is now Um, and it's a party led by tourism and business tycoon uh, and parliamentarian, his name is Gassim Ibrahim, he played a major role in the turmoil of the 2013 election. So I think for those uh, kind of two or three points that I can point out, um, mention, if President Yamin is uh, as, as he is, he is equated. So if he, he will be here for the election unless something else happens between now and um, the time of the election.
0: Uh, former president Yamin is also famously known for his pro-China stance. Notably during his presidency, he made a departure from uh, Maldives long-term foreign policy of an India first approach. His recent India Out campaign has also garnered the attention and support of the people. At a time when we see that there is more support for China that's growing domestically, we also had Chinese Foreign Minister uh, Wang Yi make a visit to Maldives earlier this year. So from a geopolitical perspective, uh, what do you think are the factors that are affecting Maldives' choice in its policy towards both of these countries? and? With the intensification of power competition in the Indian Ocean region, where small island nations like Maldives have an important role to play, uh, how how do you see the India-China rivalry playing out?
1: Um, The first uh, deciding factor is the government party. Who should be uh, ally out of these two major, uh, giant countries? Um, so the deciding factor is the governing party. Now for example, maldive's democratic party prefers to be allied with with India and um, the party has a history of assistance from India such as when former president Nasheed was sheltered and protected in the embassy's promises after he uh, premises after he was ousted and after his um, Released from jail just before jail term, uh, etc., and um, they assisted each other. Meaning, MDP, Maldives Democratic Party, and India, they, they had a symbiotic relationship. Um, for example, MDP gave a contract to upgrade the, the upgrade the airport to an Indian company called. Grandi Mallikarjun Rao, GMR for short. Now, this was a very controversial uh, issue with the government and with the opposition, with the public, with everybody. And that was a difficult uh, task for the government to solve. And of course, the party was ousted when um, the next government, Yamin's government, came in in 2013, uh, not the party, sorry, the the company, um, they terminated the contract with the Indian company and somebody else uh, was assigned, in fact, the Chinese. So de- uh, depending on, to answer your question, it's the incumbent party or parties that decides who their ally should be. Whether it's India over China or China over India, or are they both equally equal allies? Now, the second, apart from this, the second most important deciding factor is the leniency with which China funds projects. Now, international financing, financing institutions such as IMF the World Bank and even Asian Development Bank have very strict monitoring systems. Um, Then Indian aid, let's look at Indian aid. Indian aid causes other problems such as not finishing in time and providing uh, substandard work. For example, I have seen myself um, a project they did for the Maldives National University to house the, the faculty of tourism and hospitality, which the government of India took about 12 years to, excuse me, 12 years to finish. And then when it did finish, it didn't have the electricity, wasn't working. It would go off even after the, the faculty moved in there, the electricity would go off. And the water was came from pipes that were rusty, and so this kind of thing. I don't want to go into too much detail. Um, so that was a difficult point for those who were those who were depending on India's infrastructure work. A third point is, I would say, China's leniency in monitoring where the funds are spent paves the way for corruption, where the funds end up in someone's pocket, where the funds can end up. So perhaps this is an attraction for some governments. And um, since Yamin has been accused of money laundering and um, so on, um, one could say that perhaps it was a very, very attractive to work with China or depend on China's uh, funding. Um, Then you mentioned the small states in the Indian Ocean. Now, China, in my opinion, China cannot replace India in South Asia or central part of Indian Ocean, although, of course, there is a rivalry. And China is trying to um, take over, perhaps the Indian Ocean, as we could see from other uh, countries, its involvement with other countries. We don't have time to go into that, but Sri Lanka, Djibouti, etc., to name just a couple of more controversial places. Um, so I think there's no uh, there, there is rivalry, but in China will not succeed at least not at least in the near future. India is considered the security provider of the region, and hence, of course, security provider for the Maldives as well. And this is how the government sees it. Um, The government also sees China as the development partner, not the security provider. Even Yamin's government never talked about China being the security provider provider of the country or the region. I, and I think this is clear. I'm, I'm pretty sure this is clear to both countries because China moved out after the Amin government, um, after the, moved out of the government and uh, the incumbent government came in, China accepted its second place very graciously and moved on. But then, of course, now we see a slightly uh, slight change. In fact, a big change, I would say, not a slight change. New development we see, which could be considered um, perhaps deviating from the path that people expected. The path meaning since UNDP-led coalition is in the government. We do not expect, or people do not expect it to be negotiating deals with um, China, but that's not how it, is, how it was, how it turned out to be. Um, so by looking at the number of agreements made during Foreign Minister Wang Yi's visit, uh, I'll just mention a couple couple. For example, the economic and technical operation cooperation agreement on grant aid, totaling approximately 63 million US dollars that was one. This is to be used for social livelihood and infrastructure projects, as agreed by both parties. And another agreement was the visa exemption. Um, Agreement that is um, visa exemption for Maldivians visiting China, and there are um, many Maldivians doing trade in China, so uh, for them it will be a great asset. Then also there was an agreement <clears throat> to conduct a feasibility study for the management and maintenance of the China-Maldives Friendship Bridge, which links Male and the airport. And the next island, Hurumale. So it shows that MDP-led coalition can work with China as there as also their animosity towards it, it is not that great as means animosity towards India as manifested by the India out demonstrations. And also I would like to add, I think this is possible. Um, to a great extent by the foreign minister's ability to deal with, and his diplomacy, his experience in diplomacy to deal with such situations.
0: So you mentioned India as the security provider and China as a development partner for Maldives. Another aspect where India and China have played an important role recently has been through the provision of COVID-19 vaccines. So vaccines have been critical for all countries of course, but more so for smaller countries like the Maldives that have relied on other countries for vaccine imports and donations. Now focusing on the pandemic itself, uh, much like other South Asian countries that depend on tourism, the pandemic has greatly affected the Maldives. But with, within less than two years, the country has shown what the World Bank calls exemplary resilience and an ability to recover. In 2021, the visitor arrivals have reached more than 80% of pre-COVID levels, which has far outpaced other similar tourist destinations. Can you tell our listeners how Maldives has managed to achieve this turnaround in such a short period of time? First of all, I would
1: say it's strict implementation of health protection agencies, guidelines, and rules such as Full lockdown when they felt when people, when the government consulted with them. And it's it's also government, although I'm saying government meaning health ministry and other stakeholders. So the lockdown began on 27th March 2020. Um, then of course, there was the implementation of mandatory use of masks, and the government was very, very strict on this. There was a time um, when there were heavy fines during the lockdown and around that time, not just during the lockdown, but throughout 19 and 2020, I would say, and part of 2021. There were fines, strict fines. If somebody was seen without the mask, uh, he or she would be fined between 2000 and 5000. 2000 if it is the first time that person was found without a mask and um, 5000 if that person had been caught before that so this is a huge this is a huge amount a very difficult uh, task for the maldivians to be paying that much of um, money just just on the road being without the mask So I would say that frightened, that scared people, the financial part, maybe not not the health part so much, but the financial part scared the Maldivians and and the numerous laborers that we have, Bangladeshi, um, Indian and mostly Bangladeshi laborers. So that prevented, that helped them put the mask on, use the mask very strictly. And then, of course, there was the blocking of uh, tourists, especially cancellation of flights and tourists from China right from the start, right from the beginning of the COVID inset um, in the Maldives or in the world for that matter. When opened in July, 2020, still the government imposed many restrictions for example, there was lots of checking at the airport. Uh, the, the tourists were prohibited from going into inhabited islands. Now, inhabited islands, they would go only, they would go to stay with, in the guest houses, which are cheaper than tourist resorts. So that was prevented because if foreigners from other countries who had the virus went into the community, went and stayed amongst the community. So that was um, also a great help. Then tourists were confined to the resorts. They were able to, they were allowed to make a reservation on a particular resort. And from the airport, they would be taken to that resort and that they would remain in that resort no going out, no visiting uh, Male, the capital for anything, no visiting fishing island to see the fishing island or whatever, no visiting anywhere. So that contained, if tourists had been affected, that would contain in that particular island. And we have, of course, one resort, one island practice, which means at that time, at that time, one resort, one island, one, one One resort is in one island, which is the practice in the Maldives anyway, but um, they had to make that clear to the guests. And so from some of these, you could see that the geography played a great part. The island nature of geography in the Maldives separated people separated visitors from the rest of the community, separated the communities as well from each other. Now, we we were not allowed from, for example, from the capital to go to another island, from another island, come go anywhere else. Even now, monitoring is done, but of course not strict now, but still monitoring is done. And so the government knows which island has Uh, flared up with the uh, virus, and so that island would be um, quarantined, and the people in the island would be quarantined, but then of course that's not that effective as the councilors, the local council uh, is in charge of that, not the central government. So I think those are the few points I could mention about that.
0: That really is quite impressive. Uh, Another aspect that tourism is inextricably related to is the environment. In the Maldives, uh, rising seawater levels is a major cause for concern. It is a low-lying state in the Indian Ocean that faces an existential threat due to climate change. So my question to you here is twofold. What steps has the government taken to combat climate risks? And secondly, of course, on the international level, efforts to conserve and protect protect the environment need to happen at the global level because the environment is a global common good. But what role can a small state like the Maldives play in the global effort to decrease emissions and prevent global warming from increasing?
1: Um, The the government's efforts are mostly international. Um, At the local level, we cannot do much because the carbon emission is not caused by the Maldives or by countries in the region, uh, except maybe India and then perhaps China, a uh, little far away in, in Asia. But apart from that, it's mostly from. The develop, as you know, from the developing ki- countries, high, that the developed countries, highly industrialized countries. And then uh, in developing countries like the upcoming um, economies like India, Brazil, um, China, and so on. So there's nothing we can do. I, I shouldn't say nothing, but very little we could do since it's not our doing that's um, leading to sea level rise, the causing. So Maldives effort is at the international level. Then I will just mention some um, factors. Now, for example, at um, at the international arena uh, on 11th February, 2020, for example, a committee on environment and climate change Um, later on, yes, the committee now, this is at the local level, sorry, it passed a resolution to declare that the Maldives would stand at the forefront of climate change issues. So this is, uh, I think, how the government justifies their action and it doesn't need to justify section, but maybe how it's promoting its action. So it works on international community, to recognize this works on inter- to rec- recognize the vulnerability of the country to climate change, and um, so as part of the this process, the president, the incumbent president, took initiative to introduce to introduce the model. <clears throat> it's called the Climate Smart Resilient Island Initiative at the UN Climate Action Summit in September 2019. Now, this was considered to be a replicable solution to combat climate change and sustainable development for all small island developing states. And this was accepted by the UN. Apart from that uh, COP26, which took place last year, uh, Maldives was active, but Maldives is, again, more active in climate-related environments if the Maldives, the Maldives Democratic Party is in power. As President Nasheed thinks he is kind of the father of the environment, but so does uh, former President Kayum. So everybody thinks they are the fathers of uh, the environment, but. Um, I must say that um, the Maldives Democratic Party is much, much more active on this matter than the uh, uh, People's Progressive Party of Yamin. Uh, so to shorten this, it's the international environment, and you probably, and also the action, the catchy, catchy action. For example, you would have. Uh, known, I'm sure, the underwater uh, cabinet meeting. Now, now those are interesting interesting actions, very catchy. Um, Some people would call it, oh, the silly Maldivians, you know, underwater. But I think it served a purpose. It caught the eye, although it was seen like child's play, um, it caught the attention of the world even even to say that uh, the Maldives had a cabinet meeting under the water. Um, I think that was the purpose and that purpose was achieved.
0: Finally, looking at a long-term uh, trend in Maldives, uh, the island has been su- uh, struggling with uh, rising Islamic radicalization. There have been several instances of radicalism over the years, but most notably last year, there was a bomb attack on former President Mohammed Nasheed. What significant trends do you observe? And can you tell us about the steps that have been taken by the government to combat this rise of radicalism?
1: Um, The rise of radicalism has been going on for a long time. It didn't happen just last year. Uh, And the government, uh, when the previous, previous government was in power it was more contained because president former president bermoon took strict action uh, such as such as um, people could not be wearing the hijab you know the full cover the women women could not be doing that and um, so they were not able to hide and the men were not able to hide under the under the guise of women's clothes and so on and but the more recent since 2008, since um, we presume we we think we got we became democratic, and since then the governments had become more scared of the extremist, um, ex, the factions, and so it, it is not strictly, it, it is not that strict because they need perhaps they they think they need their vote, and they're also dangerous in recruiting um, jihadists, we call them, the people to go and fight in Islamic countries, like in the Middle East and so on. But um, the government does what it can do to prevent that. Unfortunately, uh, I'm going to be subjective here and say, unfortunately, the government also has very strict uh, radicalize people with radical ideas. And so one cannot really take them away from the government or to isolate them. So the policies are involved in this, the government's policies, uh, something like the Ministry of Islamic Affairs or Ministry of Home Affairs, Ministry of this Ministry of that, um, you know, And um, so it is difficult for the government to do something domestically unless complete authoritarian is in charge of the government. Um, With the so-called democratic rules, with relaxing and trying to please everybody, it's not going to happen. Now, since um, last year's attack on, the Speaker of the Majlis, the former President Rashid, two things happened. One was that the government realized the protection they have to provide for the the most powerful two people, apart from the President. That would be the Speaker of the Majlis and the Chief Justice. So that step they had taken. They have provided, or one is in the process, they have provided um, separate housing, government housing for them with added security before they were living in their own places, which didn't have that much security. Although there were people, one or two people um, as bodyguards with them, that obviously was not sufficient. When somebody wanted to attack, they could attack. uh, it was very obvious from the attack on President Nasheed last year. So that was um, good. And um, we also, I can say that the government actually in the past 10 years also had not done that, that much to catch people who have committed crimes. For example, the former um, parliamentarian, Dr. Afrashim was killed supposedly or by a, a radical but nobody could find them um the government cannot find them government meaning the police cannot find them nobody knows anything the cctv footage had been destroyed or the camera wasn't working so th- there's a whole lot of things involved in this it's powerful people obviously behind such actions. Then of course, we also have the case of the journalist, Rilwan. He was kidnapped by somebody. Apparently he used to write, not so much against the religion as such, but not mentioning strict, not following um, strict Islamic clauses. So that, uh, I, that had been the rumor that there was how he got killed by these people. And Dr. Afrashim was was an Islamic scholar, but he was not a radical, and he was a more moderate Islamic scholar. So apparently that's what his problem was, I mean, which led to his death.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your insights today on various domestic and international issues faced by the Maldives. You are listening to South Asia Chat. Tune in every Tuesday as we bring you more episodes providing analysis on latest developments across the subcontinent. To learn more about our work, you can visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. You can also follow our social media pages for updates on our publications, podcasts and events. We are on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram.